Welcome. This is a hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on East Asia, the Pacific, and International Cybersecurity Policy. Uh, the uh, hearing will come to order. And it's a pleasure to chair this hearing uh, <clears throat> on combating climate change in East Asia and the Pacific. Um, I've had the opportunity to meet with a variety of leaders and activists from all over the region. And no matter where they're from, at some point in the conversation, every leader, every activist in this region raises the same issue, the threat that the climate crisis poses to their country, their health, their economy, and their future. And it's uniform. To that end, this, this year, I reintroduced legislation to create both a global climate resiliency strategy and a new humanitarian program for those who have been displaced by environmental uh, situations, and that's only going to increase as each and every year goes by. And earlier this year, I authored a provision included in the Senate-passed Innovation and Competition Act calling on the United States government to facilitate a robust interagency Indo-Pacific climate resiliency and adaptation strategy. Uh, and that passed unanimously out of this committee, and it's in the innovation bill because we don't have any time to spare. The United States, after all, around 40% of all the excess CO2 in the atmosphere right now is red, white, and blue, and the rest of the world knows it, that we started in the 19th century sending up that CO2, and it's cumulative over the years. It stays up there for a long time. But despite that, too often we have abandoned our responsibility to those who've been impacted by our fossil fuel development and scientific recklessness. We've been reaping the economic benefits while saddling others with the deadly consequences. Take, for example, the case of the Marshall Islands. Uh, here, uh, of, uh, of a situation uh, which we are responsible for because that dome stores the nuclear waste from 67 American nuclear tests in the Marshall Islands, along with 130 tons of radioactive soil brought over from a testing site in Nevada. It fills a huge crater covered by a cement dome on uh, Runet Island. Now, the Runet Dome is at sea level, and it's at risk of a full-on collapse due to rising sea levels and other effects from climate change. This region is rife with stories of climate fuel danger and instability. And we're going to hear testimony from a young activist in the Philippines who lost her family home in Typhoon uh, Haiyan as super typhoons become the norm in this region. In the United States, uh, we need to resume our leadership role against climate change. We must remain committed to supporting and assisting our partners and allies in adapting to urgent climate threats and avoiding future emissions. This is the central tenet of the Green New Deal. It's the central tenet of what the rest of the world wants from the United States, to be the leader and not the laggard, to be able to go to Glasgow and say, here's what we're going to be doing. Uh, and we expect reciprocal action from you as well. 
So that's our challenge. And this is our warning. This is a situation where the United States used the Marshall Islands as human guinea pigs to test our nuclear weapons. And we just stored all of that nuclear. Not only are they in danger from climate change and the rising sea levels, but they're also in danger of seeing nuclear testing plus climate change come and truly create a catastrophic situation. So we have responsibilities historically, uh, and we have to discharge them. And that's a big part of what today's hearing is all about. So we welcome all of our witnesses. And let me turn and recognize the ranking member of the subcommittee, Senator Romney from Utah. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate the panelists being here today. And the topic that we're discussing is obviously of great significance to uh, each of us in this room and to people around our country and around the world. Uh, it, it is my view that uh, 50 years from now, as people look back to our generation and, and ask what our legacy uh, might have been, that upon which they will be most critical was our failure to act to prevent the warming of the planet and the climate change associated with that warming. Uh, and that, uh, that the uh, political um, uh, winds that prevented us from acting will be seen as an extraordinary lapse uh, in America's judgment. Uh, and that this is a time for us to come together and to find solutions that will actually help protect our, uh, our planet for future generations. Uh, I, I note, of course, that the challenge we're dealing with is global. Uh, not simply regional. It's not simply, obviously, an Asian issue, even though that's the topic for today, uh, climate change as it relates to uh, much of Asia, but also uh, climate change here in the United States is of significance and around the world. Um, I will also note, Mr. Chairman and members of the committee, that my own perspective is that the only effective way we will have in dealing with climate change is through uh, the ad advance in technology uh, technology which will be adopted, not just here, but around the world, and adopted because it is uh, effective in reducing emissions and also lower cost than, uh, than some of the carbon-based alternatives. Because I think it's unlikely that poor nations in particular that are becoming developed will adopt technologies that are far more expensive, even if they reduce CO2. They will, they will move to those things which are less expensive. So it's incumbent upon nations that have the resources we have to invest in technology, uh, as fortunately our, our colleagues have recently voted to do, invest in technology which will help uh, not only us reduce our, our emissions, but also help others in the, in the rest of the world. Um, I know that sometimes we're tempted to politically get behind initiatives that sound good, uh, doing things here that, uh, that, uh, that people here feel like, boy, we're doing green things here, isn't that wonderful? But the reality is that those things won't make a hill of beans worth of a difference to reducing global emissions. They'll cost us a lot of money, sometimes cost us jobs. Maybe not. Maybe they'll actually create jobs in some cases, but they won't actually reduce emissions. What will reduce emissions is adopting technologies and developing technologies which will be used around the world. I, I fully concur with the view that America uh, is responsible for a, a huge slug of the uh, CO2 that's in the, the atmosphere, uh, as the chairman indicated, uh, beginning in the 19th century. This, of course, was at a time we didn't know we were doing anything wrong. But now we understand the consequence of this CO2 going into the environment and not acting uh, would uh, be extraordinarily shameful. Uh, I, I would note that in the future, 
the growth in emissions of, of, uh, of CO2 and other warming emissions uh, is going to be driven not by the United States, because, of course, over the last decade, our emissions have been coming down, as have those of the EU, but instead, instead the developing nations, which understandably are getting washing machines and more automobiles, more electricity in the home, air conditioning, and, uh, and as a result, uh, China and Brazil and Indonesia, uh, India uh, are expected to dramatically increase their emissions of, of uh, uh, greenhouse gases. Uh, and, and so it's incumbent on us to take a close look at those places in particular and to see how we can uh, help and encourage them to take action that does not add to the uh, extraordinary burden uh, that's in our environment. Um, I, I'm concerned that, that China is hiding their CO2 plans uh, by, uh, if you will, exporting uh, the production of, uh, of facilities through Belt and Road and putting, uh, and putting infrastructure in place in other countries uh, that'll be uh, using or emitting vast amounts of, uh, of greenhouse gases. And they'll say, see, we're not doing it. It's just being done in that other country, which, by the way, we happen to put that coal power plant there. Uh, so understanding China's role and how we can work together uh, is, is important. At the same time, I'd note, and I, I know that the chairman and I agree on this, it's, it's critical as we deal with China that, yes, we want them and, and other nations to reduce their emissions and, and their plans going forward, uh, but at the same time, we will not forget or, or look beyond, uh, look away, rather, from the predations of their economic uh, activities, uh, their military activities uh, in the South China Sea and elsewhere, uh, and, their, and, and, of course, their extraordinary human rights abuses. With that, Mr. Chairman, I turn back to you and our panel. Thank you, Senator. And thank you, Senator Romney. And uh, we've got just a great panel today, two panels, actually. Uh, this uh, first panel I consist of uh, uh, Richard um, Buangan, who is the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Public Affairs and Public Diplomacy and regional and security policy in the Bureau of East Asian and Pacific Affairs at the State Department. Uh, he uh, has served in several assignments throughout his career. Uh, we welcome you, sir. Uh, next will be Dr. Jonathan Pershing, who is the Deputy Special Presidential Envoy for Climate in the Office of the Special Presidential Envoy for Climate Change. Prior to his current post, Dr. Pershing was the Program Director of Environment at the William and Flora Hewlett uh, Foundation, and he served as the Special Envoy for Climate Change at the Department of State in the Obama administration, where he coordinated the joining and implementation of the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, we welcome you, Dr. Pershing. Uh, next will be uh, uh, Craig Hart, who is the Deputy Assistant Administrator for East Asia and the Pacific at USAID, a position he's held since August of 2020. He is a career uh, member uh, of USAID. Uh, we thank you, sir, for being here. And finally, Melissa Dalton is the Acting Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy, Plans, and Capabilities. And prior to her appointment as Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy, Plans, and Capabilities, she was a senior a fellow at CSIS. So we welcome you here as well, Ms. Dalton, and we, we thank you for your service uh, during the Bush and Obama administrations at 
a DOE as an intelligence analyst. We thank you so much. So let's begin then. Let, let's recognize you, Mr. Boangan. Each of you will have five minutes to make an opening statement, uh, and then we'll go to questions from uh, the Senate panel. So please begin whenever you feel comfortable. Thank you very much, uh, Chairman Markey, Ranking Member Romney, members of the subcommittee. Thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today. It is my honor to speak uh, with you about the importance of addressing climate change in the Indo-Pacific. I'm here to testify on behalf of the Department of State's Bureau of East Asian and Pacific Affairs, which works closely with the Office of the Special Presidential Envoy for Climate uh, and the interagency to tackle the climate crisis in the region. The Indo-Pacific region is a critical focus for U.S. climate policy and strategy. It is home to the world's largest greenhouse gas emitters and some of the countries most vulnerable to climate change. It is the nexus to global economic growth and recovery. The Indo-Pacific is a top priority for the Biden-Harris administration, and our strategy for engaging the region on climate is very much aligned with our broader national security and strategic interests. U.S. efforts to foster economic prosperity, uphold security, revitalize alliances in the Indo-Pacific region are deeply integrated with our climate strategy. I'd like to talk about three objectives that we are integrating and prioritizing, uh, where we are integrating prioritizing climate change issues. The first is economic prosperity. U.S. economic prosperity is inextricably linked to the Indo-Pacific region. Climate change poses risks to property, infrastructure, human health, agricultural systems, and labor productivity, all critical to ensuring our people prosper. The Indo-Pacific has the fastest growing energy use in the world, and it is projected to grow 60% by 2040. The right government policy decisions will be critical if the world is to achieve the goals of the Paris Agreement and a global net zero future by 2050. In order to help Indo-Pacific partners meet their growing demand for energy, promote economic prosperity, and support our climate goals, the State Department, in coordination with the interagency, is sharpening the focus of our foreign assistance programs. For example, we are realigning the Asia Enhancing Development and Growth Through Energy, or Asia EDGE initiative, to support renewable energy development, energy efficiency, and advanced energy technology and policy. The second objective is upholding security. Our objective to climate change has lasting implications for peace and stability in the Indo-Pacific region. At least 94 million in the Indo-Pacific were affected by climate-related disasters in 2019. Pacific Island nations, many of them close partners of the United States, are threatened by rising sea levels and more severe tropical cyclones. In the vulnerable Mekong region and the resource-rich South China Sea, changing climate could lead to disruption of historic food stocks, shortages of water, and climate-related migration. In order to prepare for and respond to the security threats posed by climate change, the State Department is engaging vulnerable partners in the region to increase their resilience. The third objective is restoring alliances. I'd like to talk about the importance of restoring our alliances and how that relates to climate change. The State Department is engaging at the bilateral, regional, and multilateral level. On the bilateral level, I would like to highlight the important work the U.S. interagency has done, excuse me, with Japan and the Republic of Korea on climate technology innovation. I would also like to point to our partners in the Pacific, Addressing climate change is the single most important issue for Pacific Island countries who are critical partners for deterrence of adversaries and defense of the U.S. homeland. We are elevating our engagement with Pacific Island countries to enhance their ability to adopt to the impacts of climate change and build resilience. 
In coordination with the National Security Council and our interagency colleagues, we are expanding quadrilateral consultations with Australia, India, and Japan to incorporate discussions on climate ambition, clean energy transitions, and climate adaptation. Climate can also be an area where our interests align with the People's Republic of China. It is the climate change, it is the largest emitter the world cannot successfully address the climate change challenge without significant additional action by China. Although the climate crisis is a global, is a critical global challenge requiring increased and urgent action by all, the world is looking particularly to the actions the PRC will take in the near term, to the long-term goals it sets, and importantly, to the plans it puts forward to achieve those goals. The United States also recognizes that young people should be, and many already are, active leaders in working towards implementing climate change solutions. The, the Young Southeast Asian Leaders Initiative, or YSEALI, is more than, with more than 150,000 members and 6,000 alumni, is the US government's signature program in Southeast Asia to educate and provide leadership skills to young people. YSEALI members play an outsized role in tackling the climate crisis. In summary, responding to the climate crisis is critical for our national security interests, our leadership standing in the region, and the long-term stability and prosperity of our allies and partners in the Indo-Pacific. Now, I would like to give the floor to my colleague, Jonathan Pershing, from the Office of the Special Presidential Envoy for Climate. Dr. Pershing, whenever you're ready, please begin. Thank you very much, Chairman Markey, uh, Ranking Member Romney. It's a pleasure to see you uh, and all the members of the committee. It's really an honor to be here and have a chance to talk about this issue today uh, the agenda for the Indo-Pacific, as my colleague has said, is one of the most important that we're seeking to address on the climate file. I've got some longer remarks which I've passed forward. I just want to make a couple of critical points uh, that uh, perhaps would amplify some elements of that. As we look around the world, particularly at the Asia-Pacific region, we can see significant and mounting costs of global warming, including more volatility in the climate. It's coping with severe typhoons. It's coping with more intense and frequent droughts. It's coping with ocean acidification, with extended heat waves, with emergencies stemming from those, from flooding, from landslides. I saw in the paper today that more rain had fallen in one city in China in one hour than normally falls in six months. This kind of intensity is unprecedented and driven by climate. It impacts economic growth, food production, disease, it leads to regional displacement. We had a chance to visit Bangladesh. There are 20 million people in Bangladesh within one meter of sea level, and they're gonna be displaced. That kind of a frequent uh, and likely outcome is extraordinary. As my colleague has said, the Indo-Pacific countries comprise about 45% of global emissions. China's the world's largest. India, Japan, Republic of Korea, Indonesia, all in the top 10. Australia, number 16. The United States, with its climate diplomacy with these governments, is urging them and other major emitters worldwide to strengthen mitigation and to better align their 2030 greenhouse gas emissions reductions toward a net zero target by 2050. China's the top priority. We have to find ways to work with them to drive the necessary action or we cannot keep the temperature at or below, well below two degrees with a hope of keeping it to 1.5. President Xi Jinping said he would strive for carbon neutral emissions by 2060. We're pressing them to do more, to invest not in a coal-powered future, but in a clean future. 
But I want to be clear on our approach, and Senator Romney, this is something that you've also mentioned, and as Secretary Blinken and, and Secretary Kerry, Presidential Special Envoy Kerry have said, it's a critical issue, but other aspects of the US-China relationship will not be traded for the climate discussion. India and Indonesia are also top priorities for engagement. While I realize that India is not one of the jurisdictional members of this committee, it is a central player in the solution. I just want to note that Prime Minister Modi's focus on driving clean energy is perhaps a harbinger for what we might do around the world with others. 450 gigawatts of renewable energy is an extraordinary level of achievement that he is seeking. In Indonesia, the destruction of forests and the planting of crops on peatlands is the main source of national emissions, along with coal for electric power. To help, the administration's launched a bilateral climate policy. In that act, we've been working on consultative exercises, focusing on cooperation, on mitigation, on nature-based solutions, a clean energy program, and on financing mobilization to support climate mitigation. Japan and Korea, also central players, large emitters, but key partners in the region. Each has committed to 2050 net zero greenhouse gas emission goals. They've also committed to action in the 2020s. This is not a delaying tactic. Japan announced a target of 46 to 50% carbon emissions reductions by 2030 from 2013 levels. And both governments pledged to end public financing for new overseas unabated coal, a step agreed by all G7 members. Emissions are not our only priority. We have to help vulnerable countries build resilience to climate impacts. And the vulnerabilities are an acute risk in this region. Six of the top 10 countries most affected by climate were in the Indo-Pacific, Myanmar, the Philippines, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Thailand, Nepal. For Pacific Island countries, it's actually an existential threat. It's their single most important issue. Climate finance is gonna be a critical tool for us to achieve these resilience goals. Enhanced resources will build domestic as well as diplomatic influence. We wish to build infrastructure cooperation in our foreign partnerships through the Build Back Better World, through the Blue Dot Network, and through bilateral programs. We'd like to deepen our cooperation with you in Congress to build US resources and capabilities, particularly with the DFC, the Millennium Challenge Corporation, as well as enhanced support for USAID. Our regional investment represents huge commercial opportunity. The global clean investment opportunity is between 78 and $130 trillion in low carbon power, grids, hydrogen, transport, and other sectors. But upfront investment from the US is going to be critical to de-risk and align climate projects with what we need to see. Achieving solutions to the Indo-Pacific mitigation and resilience challenges is the linchpin to solving the climate problem. Our partners and us in the Indo-Pacific have to address the crisis which threatens regional growth and development. Thank you very much, and I look forward to the questions and the discussion with the committee. Thank you, Doctor, so much. Uh, Mr. Hart, you're up next. Thank you, Chairman Markey, Ranking Member Mara Romney, and distinguished members of this committee. Thank you for the opportunity to testify about the important role that U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, plays in addressing climate crises in East Asia and the Pacific. It is our honor to be here today. USAID is grateful for the ongoing collaboration with the Senate Foreign Relations Committee as we work to align our efforts to, on climate change with the scope and complexity of the challenge. Climate change is a global crisis that threatens our health, economic progress, and lives. 
It threatens development progress and exacerbates global inequities. Increases water and food security, the need for humanitarian assistance and displacement. It worsens the quality of air we breathe, our health outcomes, and contributes to conflict. The climate crisis fosters instability and threatens to undo the progress we've made and the taxpayer dollars that we've invested in global development, prosperity, and security. The Biden administration is elevating climate as a core priority for US foreign policy and national security. The United States is moving forward with an integrated whole of government approach to climate change that includes strengthened bilateral and multilateral partnerships to address this challenge at home and abroad. We will work with other countries and partners to put the world on a sustainable climate pathway. USAID is developing a new agency-wide climate strategy to target resources strategically, ramp up our change mitigation and adaptation efforts, and further integrate climate change considerations into international development and humanitarian assistance programs across all sectors. We will look forward to, to continuing uh, to engage with our congressional stakeholders as this strategy takes shape. In East Asia and the Pacific, USAID is well positioned to support the administration's bold climate change agenda and the implementation of the Paris Agreement by our partner countries. USAID partners with countries to implement ambitious emissions reductions measures to reach the global goal of dramatically reduced greenhouse gas emissions by 2020 and achieve net zero emissions by mid-century. USAID expertise and programs protect critical ecosystems, promote better forest and land management, and build resilience to the efforts and the effects of climate change. Our assistance helps countries improve food security, reduce emissions, and transition to renewable energy, as well as promote sustainable climate investments. To further the USG's shared vision for a free and open Indo-Pacific, USAID helps our partners to understand how to conduct open, competitive as well as, uh, tenders, as well as to evaluate proposals to identify those which fit the country's needs. USAID assistance helps our partner countries to identify climate solutions that do not saddle them with unsustainable debts, but rather identify sustainable solutions. To achieve our climate ambitions, USAID is focused on our comparative advantage, our field presence, and our ability to partner with key stakeholders. This includes large corporations whose commitments to achieve net zero have doubled in the last year, government ministries, and local communities most impacted by the effects of climate change. This approach has allowed USAID to mobilize over $28 billion in climate finance since FY 2016 worldwide. To close, USAID is accelerating the scale of our climate change and environmental efforts to meet the urgency of this great challenge. We will engage with our partner countries, international donors, and the private sector to build local capacity and identify innovative approaches from green technologies, sustainable practices, and access to finance and apply them with solutions on the ground. USAID's climate investments abroad have a direct impact here at home. Climate change presents an immense challenge, one that we can and will meet. USAID is a global leader in promoting climate adaptation and mitigation solutions, and will continue to support the Biden-Harris administration's bold climate agenda. We're eager to work with Congress, our partner countries, and the private sector to achieve bold climate 
action across the countries and sectors in which we work. Thank you very much, and I welcome your questions. Thank you, Mr. Hart. Ms. Dalton? Chairman Markey, Ranking Member, excuse me, Chairman Markey, Ranking Member Romney, and distinguished members of the subcommittee, thank you for the opportunity to testify today. May I request permission to submit my written statement for the record and provide brief opening remarks? Without objection. Thank you. It is my pleasure to talk to you about how the Department of Defense is thinking about the implications of climate change, particularly with respect to the Indo-Pacific and the impacts on planning, assets, and strategy in support of a whole-of-government approach. The Interim National Security Strategic Guidance identified climate change as one of the most significant threats the country and the department faces. As Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin has said, no nation can find lasting security without addressing the climate crisis. He described it as an existential threat that poses a variety of risks for U.S. national security. The challenges posed by climate change are not simply about increased demands for humanitarian assistance. They are also hard security challenges, not least of which are the climate risks to military installations themselves. In the Pacific, the Secretary alluded to the particular risks low-lying island countries face from sea level rise and storms. For example, the Marshall Islands has an average elevation of just six feet above sea level. The country hosts the Ronald Reagan Ballistic Missile Defense Test Site and the Space Fence Facility on Kwajalein Atoll. These are examples of critical national security sites located in climate-exposed parts of the Pacific. As the Secretary noted, the Department has felt the impact of climate change in recent years, as extreme weather events have wrecked havoc on a number of our facilities, including billions of dollars in damage to Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida from Hurricane Michael, the effects of flooding on Offutt Air Force Base in Nebraska, and threats to military installations in California from wildfires. In the Pacific, Secretary Austin mentioned that an unseasonal typhoon in February 2019 forced the pause of humanitarian relief and disaster response training exercises with Australian and Japanese allies. Deputy Secretary of Defense Hicks has noted, the effects of climate change are a national security issue impacting DOD's missions and operational plans, readiness, our installations, and the department's budget. It does this by simultaneously increasing demands on the force while impacting our capacity to respond to those demands. In light of these concerns, the Deputy Secretary identified two priorities for the department. First, we are inculcating a culture of climate-informed decision-making and incorporating climate change into threat assessments, budgets, and operational decision-making. In addition, we are taking care of our people, including members of the armed forces and the civilians who serve with them, by buttressing the resilience of our installations and the structures where people work and live. Addressing these priorities involves a number of concrete steps. The President's executive order of January 27th tasked the Department to lead the interagency in the creation of a climate risk analysis that would assess the security implications of climate change and integrate those findings into strategic documents, notably the National Defense Strategy. We are currently finalizing the risk analysis that will meet the objectives of the executive order and inform the ongoing NDS review. We anticipate that implementation of the climate risk analysis will allow regional combatant commands like Indo-PACOM and regional office like OSD policies Indo-Pacific Security Affairs to assess their vulnerabilities and opportunities for engagement with allies and partners. DOD is also focused on improving installation resilience. DOD has developed 
a climate assessment tool, or DCAT, which relies on historical data and future climate projections and will enable personnel at all levels of the department to understand installations' exposure to climate-related hazards. Within Indopecom, we have also committed to sharing the DCAT with our South Korean and Japanese allies. We have also recently completed a climate adaptation plan, which is intended to integrate climate adaptation and resilience efforts across the department and align these efforts with its warfighting missions. We have considerable national defense equities in the Pacific related to missile defense and domain awareness, including the Marshall Islands, Palau, and the U.S. territory, Guam. Our integrated air and missile defense system is designed to protect the United States from missile attacks and the freedom to test new technology. These systems not only contribute to strategic stability and deterrence between the U.S. and China, but also defend against North Korean capabilities and reassure other Pacific allies, such as South Korea and Japan. We also recognize that many of the sovereign states in the region, particularly low elevation atoll states like Kiribati, Tuvalu, and others, face considerable vulnerabilities due to climate change. We continue to collaborate with our partners in the Pacific to backstop disaster preparedness and humanitarian response to climate-related emergencies through efforts such as ADMM+, the Pacific Islands Forum, and the France Agreement with France, Australia, and New Zealand. Going forward, we will be integrating climate concerns into our planning, assets, and strategy. What form these will precisely take will depend on the outcome of ongoing reviews. Mr. Chairman, let me conclude by thanking the subcommittee for the opportunity to testify, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Ms. Dalton. Um, I, I think it's uh, obvious to you that uh, people are coming and going. That's not a sign of disrespect uh, or lack of courtesy. It's the reality that we have votes going on, uh, and so we have to pull out one by one to make sure that we, uh, we're able to, uh, uh, to vote. Um, uh, let me begin with a, a couple of questions. Uh, first to you, uh, Mr. Mr. Bongun, and that is uh, President Xi, during uh, President Biden's April meeting on summit, or climate, on climate rather, uh, reiterated the country's intent to, to peak carbon emissions by 2030 and achieve carbon neutrality before 2060. Um, how, um, how committed do you think uh, President Xi is to those, uh, those uh, targets and what actions are, uh, are, are Chinese leaders taking to actually achieve them? How much of this is actually being just pushed off to a much later time when all these folks like me will be gone? Uh, and uh, and what's being done now, and how much is being uh, avoided or China reaching these goals by simply offloading their their carbon uh, demands uh, onto other countries in the Belt and Road Initiative? Thank you for your uh, question, Senator. Yeah, that's certainly um, um, something that w we are definitely um, uh, tracking with great interest at the State Department. Uh, it's uh, um, uh, the fact that, that China represents almost 30% of global emissions um, in addition to its carbon-intensive investments, uh, we think that uh, it's important to, uh, put, um, uh, to, to, to put expectations on the PRC in particular that, that they back up what they say, what they promise, what they pledge with concrete actions. Uh, and that's, that goes, that's not just for the PRC, but for any country that um, uh, that takes in the long, in the near term, uh, the the they pledge and they meet the long term goals that they set. Um, we are uh, at the end of the day, we are going to be looking at what Beijing does, 
uh, and not what it says it will do or won't do. Certainly, uh, President Xi has made uh, many commitments uh, to address uh, the climate challenge on behalf of the PRC that we have yet to see uh, materialize, uh, and those are certainly topics of discussion uh, at, uh, at, senior le at senior levels uh, in our engagement with the PRC. And, and from your perspective, uh, is China continue to build uh, coal power plants uh, uh, at home and or abroad? Uh, well, yeah, we certainly are seeing that. Uh, and I think that given uh, China's uh, reluctance uh, to follow through on many of its pledges, it's, uh, I think, I think the, uh, the key here is to hold them accountable and to set very uh, specific expectations uh, to follow through on what they pledged uh, in calling out uh, actions that are contrary to um, uh, to, to to what the, what they've pledged. Yeah, I can't. I simply can't imagine having an objective that they've set uh, that, that President Xi set uh, for 2030 and again for 2060, and at the same time building new coal power plants. Uh, that that I mean, there there are alternatives, uh, natural gas alternatives. Uh, obviously, nuclear is not one that they're going to seize upon. Uh, but but building new uh, coal plants, particularly ones that that, that not only add carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, but also add other pollutants uh, without the kind of scrubbing that we're used to here, it, it seems to be incompatible with the objectives that they're set that they're mm -hmm. setting. And it, it does seem that what they're saying is designed to create a, a, a political win for them. But in reality, they, they don't seem to have much intent to actually uh, make the kind of changes that would result in, in a reduction in CO2 growth or CO2 emissions. I think that's right. And I think uh, the responsibility is on us to ensure that, uh, as, uh, 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 as, as the PRC has pledged, that they follow through on their commitments, as I've said, uh, and that um, they, uh, they don't get a pass, which I think they've certainly expected. And certainly, they are certainly building the narrative uh, that they are leaders in climate change. Uh, and, and reduction of greenhouse gases. Uh, and I think the proof is in the pudding, um, as you pointed out, uh, the actions that the actions that they've taken are contrary to what they've pledged. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Pershing, uh, Secretary Kerry has, has uh, called for climate change to be treated as a compartmentalized issue in the U.S.-China relations. Uh, and yet, I think it's clear to us that, that in some respects they can't be compartmentalized, in part because of uh, China's human rights abuses in the production of uh, solar panels, uh, fuel cell batteries, and even the procurement of, of raw earths. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm wondering, uh, can they be separated and, and treated uh, uh, as separate uh, areas? Or, or are they inextricably linked uh, in a way that, that, uh, that we can't ignore? Thank you very much, Senator. Uh, just a quick comment on your previous question before I answer that one. It does seem that there is some history where China has, in fact, met its commitments. And so I don't want the, 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 the committee to be thinking that it's only bad. I agree with you. There's no way they get there if they keep building coal. No way. There's no way they get there if they keep investing in overseas coal. But historically, they've done more than they've said they would do. And they're on a trajectory that would suggest they could still meet this trajectory, this commitment. They exceeded their intensity targets. They exceeded their renewable targets. And it looks like they're not actually using the coal they're building. It's kind of an expensive program if you're not ever going to use it. But they're not using it, and so it doesn't lead to very many emissions. So there's a, a good question you're raising, but I think there's more nuance that is worth exploring. 
With regard to the human rights issues, we completely agree with you. It is an appalling state of affairs. And the objective that we've got is absolutely centered on how we address that. These are not necessarily things that have to be brought together, though. They're things we can distinguish and we can separate out. We want them to do their climate work, and we also want them to stop with human rights violations and abuses. And we want them to stop with the other things they've been doing on other interference globally. So I think as we see it, those two things can be pulled apart, and we can have a policy in which China moves aggressively and appropriately on climate, but also doesn't have these violations. How, how do you do that with regards to batteries, for instance, and solar panels, where we're buying these things like crazy, we're planning an automotive market, which will be overwhelmingly uh, powered by electric vehicles, um, and yet these are being produced uh, in, in places with minority, if you will, slave labor. Uh, I'll say internment camp labor. Uh, how, do we, how can you compartmentalize those two things when they're so, so linked? So I think there are two parts to that. The first one is that I think we can put in place standards that assure that the places from which we are purchasing those commodities and those goods do not have that labor. It's going to require some work on our side. The second is to extend the supply chain so it is not reliant on a single player like Xinjiang province or others who have those constraints. Those could be American jobs. Those could be jobs in our allies' countries. That could be a supply chain that we build out. So I think there's an opportunity for us to seize as well as assuring that the chain itself is cleaned up so that we can actually get to the place we want to be. Thank you, Mr. Pershing. Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, Senator Romney. Um, the chair will now recognize himself for a round of questions. Um, let's, I would like to follow up on Senator Romney's line of questioning, just going to the supply chain issue in terms of these vital um, component parts to so much of what is important to the United States. We already have a semiconductor crisis in the United States, and if we don't put together a plan, you know, we're and we dramatically expand, as does the rest of the world, in the production of the clean energy uh, sector, we're going to wind up with more and more problems. So do you have a recommendation as to how we should handle this supply um, side, supply chain issue, uh, Dr. Pershing? Can you hear me? Thank, yes. Uh, thanks very much, Senator. Uh, yes, I think that this is a critical question. And I don't think it's a question only for us. I think we have a lot of allies in this agenda. We're not the only ones who are actively promoting solar. Our European colleagues are doing it. Our Japanese and Korean colleagues are doing it. I had a conversation this morning with our colleagues in Indonesia who are really interested in this. And all of us want to see opportunities for the access to solar without these kinds of damaging supply chains. We're hearing a lot of interest in expanding those capacities. At one end, the United States itself has got some dormant capacity. We could bring that online. We could produce some of the things that we need at home. We're also seeing, and we had some consultations when we were in Saudi Arabia with the Saudis, We've been talking a bit to the Japanese who are looking at other options for financing these things in third countries. There could be an enlarged supply chain at a global level that would potentially compete with or replace the Chinese chain. It'll take a few years to get there. We have to do that quickly. We have to invest immediately. Yeah, thank you. When uh, Speaker Pelosi and I went to uh, China in the immediate aftermath of the Waxman-Markey bill passing, we met with President Hu, uh, Premier Wen, we went through the entire country's leadership for about eight days. And uh, 
the, the key takeaway I took was from one of the key advisors who said to me, don't you think the perfect formula is United States um, innovation and Chinese manufacturing efficiency, and together we will partner to save the planet, which sounds very you know, idealistic, but I could see them getting all the jobs and us getting a pat on the back for being so innovative. So we know that we have a problem, you know, and it's been there the whole long, sad story of all these issues, including semiconductors. So my question to you is, I know that the Europeans right now are talking about, seriously, a border adjustment tariff. And I'm just wondering, Dr. Pershing, where you think that fits into a U.S. strategy, especially if we partnered with the Europeans and sent that signal to China and other countries that might seek to exploit uh, the fact that we're going to put very high standards in place. So thanks very much for that. I, I think, uh, as you probably saw, the Europeans have announced the first draft of their strategy. Uh, I think it's going to take a lot of work before it's final. It's somewhat easier in the context where you either have a domestic price or a cap-and-trade structure, which you yourself trying to work on. It makes it simpler to execute. In the U.S. context, where there's a series of complicated and varied measures across the country, it will be somewhat harder to assess how you assign the price and the value for commodities. I think that's work that needs to be done. At the same time, it is worth considering. We are not looking to uh, disadvantage American companies as we develop a domestic program. So I think that's the balance we have to seek, and there's work to be done to evaluate it. Yeah, uh, Henry Waxman and I built a border adjustment tax into the 2009 Waxman-Murkey bill, and Angela Merkel uh, spoke to us about how important she felt it was to have a signal that we were sending. So I, ultimately, we have to let them know we're serious at some point in terms of their exploitation of our our higher standards, which are going to go much higher if we are able to pass all of the legislation that we are talking about. And maybe you could tell us where, where you think are the greatest areas of potential cooperation between the United States and China when it comes to uh, the climate crisis, Dr. Pershing. Thank you. I think we're seeking ones in which the US and China are not competing in the same way because we don't see that's going to play well for either of us. I don't think we want to be in the position where we lose our technology, a technological advantage, or where we see commercial opportunities. That has not gone well. At the same time, there are clearly areas of good practice that we could share. Things like, how do you manage a city to be more efficient? What do you do about your agricultural practices as you try to feed your people? Things that work in our farm belt could work for them. Questions about how you manage resilience. And then, how do you work outside of China? China's making massive investments overseas. We could work on things that would give us an advantage in those third countries that could shape and alter the Chinese trajectory. Yeah, and, and one quick question, which is that the, the Chinese are dismantling a lot of their older coal-burning plants and then reassembling them in Africa and other places. And they're kind of providing these coal-burning old jalopies as though they're doing a favor for those countries uh, because they're so inexpensive. What should be the message of the United States to China, especially as we're heading uh, into Glasgow in terms of that kind of behavior by China? I think there's two messages. The first one is that's unacceptable in the context of getting the world on a trajectory to avoid the climate crisis. And China recognizes it is a crisis for itself as well as for the world. That's powerful. The second message that I think we have to sell is to have some alternative to offer to those countries who are getting a deal from China. And unless we do that, 
They then look and say, here's a bird in the hand, it's a Chinese facility, and on the other hand, there isn't an option. I think we have to come forward with the other option. I think we will be competitive with the other option, but it's on us. No, I, and I agree with you, but I don't think we should leave Glasgow without that having been resolved, because that's just a very cynical ploy by the Chinese, and it has to be unacceptable from Glasgow on. Uh, let me just stop there and turn and recognize the uh, senator from Oregon, Mr. Merkley. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, and thank all of you for this uh, testimony. And uh, I'm thinking about kind of the general nature of this conversation, which uh, does focus a lot on what China is doing and its financing of more than 200 coal plants around the, the world. I wanted to direct my uh, questions to you, Dr. Pershing, because I feel like U.S. leadership is so essential in moving forward in partnership with the world. And so I, there's, I feel there's some things that perhaps the U.S. could consider doing in this uh, coming year that might strengthen our persuasive power. Uh, and uh, one is to move more aggressively on our green climate bond obligation. I think the administration, I think we initially pledged $3 billion and we deposited $1 billion. And the budget calls for additional, I think, 1.2, the president's budget. And so that $3 billion was a pledge kind of more than four years ago. And yet there's a lot of damage happening around the world from climate. And, and we recognize that the arc of our past development has put a lot of the carbon dioxide into the air. Should we be more aggressive in striving to, to fund the, the Green Climate Fund and in terms of our persuasive power? Thank you very much, Senator, for that question. I think the answer is fundamentally yes. I don't think there's a scenario in which we can do two things. The first one is that we've made a commitment under Paris collectively to try to mobilize $100 billion per year to really work with the developing countries as they seek to mitigate climate and adapt to its risks. The United States' share of that has been quite modest, and I think it should be bigger. The second point is, where's the budget? And I think that's up to you. I think that the question that we're looking at is how do we increase two parts, what the US brings to the table through government funding, and how we can leverage that government funding into the private sector, have a much, much larger sum. If we can work on both sides, that means a bit on the World Bank side, a bit on the Green Fund side, a bit on the AID side, it frames the DFC, it frames a series of opportunities that we have to succeed on the climate file while we also work with companies who are gonna invest in this future. When you mentioned the DFC, and the DFC has said that it plans to continue to finance a small number of fossil fuel projects uh, under exceptional circumstances, but it seems to me like that's the sort of place where we could set a better example by saying we will double down on renewable energy solutions in place after place. We just, it's time to stop financing these, these projects. And maybe that's the type of announcement that could come during, uh, I don't know, the end of this year or something of that nature and, and strengthen the sense that we're committed to this pivot to renewables as we try to persuade others. I think there's a lot in that. We are working exactly along those lines. The question is how can you both do big new investments in the alternative and scale back the first. We have to be there for countries on their energy supply side. 
They know that. We could do that exactly as you've laid it out. Another place where, where I think we could be more aggressive is in the World Bank. The World Bank has made some significant decisions regarding coal. Uh, many diplomats point out that the United States is now more of a natural gas and oil leader, and so we're criticizing China over coal. Uh, but the World Bank has said, and diplomats have told us, that the U.S., in its presence in the World Bank, is still encouraging keeping the natural gas track open. And it's an example kind of something that might help us because we have natural gas, but doesn't, per, doesn't hold the same moral power than us saying, yeah, we recognize that all forms of fossil fuels you need to pivot on, and it's time for the World Bank to stop financing all fossil fuel projects. So just two quick comments. The first one is that the International Energy Agency released a report about a month ago in which they looked at how you get to net zero, and they believe that it's not necessary to make any new investments in any of the unabated fuel sources of the fossil direction, coal, oil, or gas. We have enough. But it also says we have to make the alternative investment. We have to help these countries build their grids to build renewable capacity, and that's a place the bank can go, and we're trying to work on that. Well, I, so I hope that we'll hear another announcement sometime in a year or so, in a year, that we're going to use our leverage at the World Bank and all international finance institutions uh, to do a, an end to the fossil fuel investments. And I'm running out of time, so I'll just uh, end on this note. And that is um, we've had two major fossil fuel decisions in the last few months. One was the Willow Project in Alaska, a 300-mile pipeline, a massive carrying capacity of that pipeline, and uh, doing a new version of Line 3, mm -hmm. which will double the capacity of tar sands, which is perhaps the, the dirtiest form of fossil fuels in, in the world. And I think it, and I'll just express my opinion uh, here, but I think it does undermine our persuasiveness in the world to be trying to persuade China to rapidly, more rapidly reduce its use and to abandon this strategy of doing coal projects around the world while we're still launching new development of major fossil fuel efforts uh, here or projects uh, here in the United States. Thank you. I, I think there's a good question you raised there. We do see that there's a decreasing willingness on the part of any of the investment houses to make these investments. The risk is too high. I think the market's moving the direction that we as governments want it to move. In some of these cases, it's not a government decision. It's a private decision. And so this kind of tension around what we can demand and what we're seeking to facilitate is hard. But you're right. It makes it harder to make the case globally when we're making different investments at home. Thank you. I just want to reemphasize what Senator Merkley just said. You can't preach temperance from a bar stool. You can't be building new pipelines, bringing in the dirtiest oil in the world, and then be going to Glasgow and telling other people it's really bad. You shouldn't be doing it. You, you have to square up your own actions with what you're going to ask others to do. Let me turn and recognize the um, senator from Delaware, Senator Coons. Thank you, Chairman Markey, uh, and um, thank you to this panel and um, for all of you for the great work you've done over decades uh, and that you're doing in the current context and current environment. Um, from the blazing wildfires of the American West to the deadly floods we've just seen in Germany and China, there's, there's no doubt that the need for action on climate could not be greater. And we have to do whatever we politically can to address this. And I, I appreciate Special Envoy 
uh, carry in the administration's focus on international climate cooperation and new commitments on uh, climate finance. As the chairman of the Appropriations Subcommittee responsible for um, securing funds to meet the commitment to the Green Climate Fund and for the MCC and for DFC and for our international financing commitments, I look forward to your advice and to partnering with you, uh, Chairman Markey, as we move forward. In the East Asia-Pacific region, as we know, as you outlined in your testimony, we both have some of the world's greatest emitters and some of the countries that are most likely to face harm most quickly if we don't get this right. Um, China, if I understand correctly, is still financing nearly three-quarters of all coal-fired power plants globally um, and represents 27% of total global emissions and has made a commitment to net zero by 2060, which many of us would agree is insufficiently ambitious and will leave them well behind the trajectory of the rest of the world. So Deputy Assistant Secretary Bognon, if I might, um, what tools do we have to work with China, positively, negatively, to provide incentives um, and pressure uh, to get them to align more closely with our net zero goals and with the goals that most of the rest of the world will be announcing or moving towards in Glasgow? Sorry. In, in terms of uh, um, what the administration is doing, um, certainly we're, um, uh, uh, we have um, senior leadership engagement uh, ongoing. Um, I think uh, with respect to China, uh, it's certainly uh, a, um, an issue that um, you know, we're, we're, um, we're addressing. Uh, you saw the administration's recent actions that we've taken um, in, uh, uh, with respect to Xinjiang forced labor uh, and the solar supply chain, which we talked about um, earlier. Um, our, um, uh, 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 Dr. Hardy, if you might want to, excuse me, Dr. Pershing, Mr. Hardy, if you might want to also pitch in on what are the tools available to the administration to try and move the Chinese closer to our position? I'd appreciate it. Senator, thank you. Um, and I, and I want to comment a little bit about really working with our host country governments to be able to work with our partners to under to, because they want to understand how do they go about engaging on this issue and they need a lot if of I'm not mistaken you actually had experience doing this in Tanzania am I correct where this was actually challenging did I not see you previously in Tanzania we sure did yes sir yes, yes sir yes exactly that's exactly where we saw each other and, and, and indeed in Tanzania my last four years in Vietnam um, these countries need assistance in terms of being able to assess what's coming at them right. and there's a lot coming at them in terms of offers um, and I think there's a lot of good great work that we can engage there um, when it comes to being able to understand the, the technical expertise aspect of it, being able to understand the democracy and governance in terms of actually putting out tenders for these, that is a critical aspect. And a lot of the countries do want to have those high quality infrastructure systems come in, such as an American company could provide. But the, the requirement- Mr. Hart, my assessment would be that Power Africa actually was at its most successful, had its greatest impact in that space helping design projects, helping with tenders, helping with transparency, frankly. Absolutely. Um, and did not provide the robust financing that many countries were looking for. That's why I worked um, hard with a group of members of the House and Senate to then build the DFC so that there was a financing vehicle available. I would argue it's still under-resourced, but at least there's now those two. Would you argue for expanding the Power Africa approach to other regions, Central, South America, Southeast Asia? 
I think we have definitely utilized your, your design very well uh, in terms of being able to connect and do, do the matchmaking that's required. Our staff are there working with folks on a day-to-day -day basis, and that is what they need to be, to be able to develop the trust that's required to actually reach out and um, better access some of these financing tools. And so we have looked at um, Asia Edge, for example, um, that's a great example of how we've been able to work with the private sector, who's very interested also in terms of meeting some of these clean, clean energy goals as well. Um, those who are producing clean energy and looking at direct power purchase agreements as well. But figuring out what, the, the complexity of it is making sure that all the stakeholders are at the table and that the trust is built over years, quite frankly. Thank so you. That is if I might, forgive me. Um, Dr. Pershing, um, on a border carbon adjustment, the EU is actively implementing. Um, Canada and the UK are seriously discussing and preparing. Um, I think um, it's likely that we'll move forward with a border carbon adjustment in some version um, in our reconciliation bill. I introduced a bill on Monday with Scott Peters um, that would require the administration to come up with an assessment over um, the next two years um, of exactly what the regulatory price is. This is in the interim until we've got a price on carbon. Um, and then would assess that on a variety of um, imports, steel, iron, aluminum, cement, natural gas, petroleum, coal, um, where it's relatively easy to assess the carbon intensity of those uh, products, um, and then use the revenue raised for state grant programs for resilience, assistance to small businesses, uh, energy assistance, energy innovation. Um, I think it's a great way for us to pull together um, with countries that are our values allies on both open societies and on carbon ambition. Um, some have criticized it already in the press. Uh, it's raised questions, uh, positive and negative. I'd be interested in your views about both how we could most successfully implement a border carbon adjustment and how the administration is approaching um, the reframing of trade around climate values and climate ambition. So thanks very much, Senator. Um, that is a lot of questions, all of which I think are Sorry. central. <laughs> um, and we've only had a chance to really begin to look at the bill that you've proposed, the, the structure that you proposed in the act. Uh, I think there's a lot in that that is very, very much uh, aligned with the thinking we've been doing. Two things. The first one, it's very clear you do not want to disadvantage American companies as you do the climate policy work, because we don't want to be in a position where others act uh, with impunity while we bear some transition cost. It's going to be a transition cost because I think there's a value in moving first movers that you then get to own the market, and I think that market is coming, but there is potentially a transition cost. The second, though, is one you've just outlined, and it's around the complexity of the arrangements. They're really not straightforward, and I think we just had a little bit of, a, of an exchange with Senator Markey about some of the early work that he had done around a pricing mechanism, which makes it much easier. There are ways, however, in my mind and in our collective thinking that you don't need a price mechanism, but you can still assign value and differentiate between what it costs an American to make something right. and an overseas actor. I think that's where your bill is proposing to go. I think we need to do some study on it. I'd like very much to follow up with you and your team to do that work and that analysis. It's in our remit to take that forward. The president has asked uh, uh, Special Envoy Kerry to lead part of that assessment, so we'll be working on it and look forward to talking to you about your vision. Thank you. Uh, I look forward to working with you uh, on that as well. Uh, as uh, Senator Markey well knows, um, emissions don't respect borders. Um, and um, he's been hard at this work uh, for quite some time. I look forward to partnering with him in the months ahead as we uh, get ready for Glasgow. And 
Um, I appreciate the continued partnership with the administration and what each of you is doing to help lead um, in this critical area. Thank you, Chairman Markey. Yeah, thank you, Senator Coons. And uh, in, in my view is that if we don't partner with Europe on this in our relationship with China in, uh, in Glasgow, we just wind up as Uncle Sucker. You know, we have to have a, we have to have a plan for what's happening in uh, their production uh, strategies, and we have to understand that uh, unless they know that we're firm and we have a plan, that they'll just continue to rumble. The United States wins whenever we have a plan. If we don't have a plan, they will win. So let's let's try to work together. And I'm I'm so glad that Senator Coons is working on this issue. There's some formulation here that can work, and if done in conjunction with the Japanese. Uh, and the Europeans, uh, I think it sends a very powerful message to the Chinese. Um, so let, let, me, uh, well, let me ask you, Mr. Pongan, given the United States' absence in the fight over the last uh, four years, during the Trump years, um, what do you think the best thing that we can do as a nation to signal to all of those East Asian nations, those Pacific Islanders, uh, that the United States is back in the game? Uh, thank you, Senator. I think um, this administration is certainly starting to do it by being present uh, and speaking out um, forcefully and prioritizing the Indo-Pacific as a national security priority for this administration. Um, as you, as you uh, see in the press, Deputy Secretary Sherman is currently in the region. Um, she's engaging with our partners and allies, and she just announced today our, um, that she's going to be visiting the PRC. So there's certainly uh, a healthy amount of diplomacy going on there. Uh, so I think that being present uh, both in the bilateral and multilateral space uh, as we are returning to um, uh, many of our multilateral engagements is key. Uh, and it's also, I think, um, helping uh, those countries uh, in, uh, that, that are most affected by climate change um, uh, meet uh, the, those, those demands. Uh, and that's uh, meeting, um, matching our the words with our actions uh, and, and doing the things um, that we say that we're going to do and say that we're going to um, pledge. So um, the, you mentioned the, the Pacific Island countries as an example. A lot of these uh, countries there view climate change as an, as, as an existential threat. Um, we are uh, recognizing that many of those countries are hard hit by climate change. Um, we've uh, announced many initiatives uh, to uh, help them mitigate that. For example, the International Climate Finance Plan um, which is um, intent on doubling our annual public climate uh, finance developing countries by 2024. Um, the, um, uh, the administration's also launched the uh, Small and Less Populous Island Economies Initiative, or SALPI, uh, which is an economic cooperation framework. Uh, so it's, it's actions that um, also um, uh, help these countries um, meet these uh, meet 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 these challenges, and, and I agree with you. And that's why I brought this picture because if you're a Marshall Islander, and you see what we left behind after '67 nuclear tests, just a huge dome carrying all of the waste from '67 nuclear blast, transporting from Nevada all of that nuclear waste and putting it right there. And now you can see the rising tides that surround that dome, which is weakening, by the way. And if you want to talk about recombinant environmental nuclear DNA being just spewed across the Pacific, that is the situation. So they have a right to expect us to not further contribute to the likelihood that that day is going to arrive. Uh, 
Mr. Hart, what, what would be your recommendation in terms of what our message is to these Pacific Islanders? What more should we be saying to them in terms of uh, climate mitigation adaptation uh, efforts in uh, the Pacific Islands? Thank you, sir. Uh, I very much agree with my state colleague. I think that showing up makes a difference. USAID has actually increased our presence by threefold in the Pacific Islands in the last couple of years. We've increased our assistance in terms of development assistance as well as uh, emergency assistance by four times, thanks to your support. And so I think showing up, making sure that we have that on-the-ground collaboration, that we are developing those absolutely essential trust relationships uh, because that, that trust and that relationship is going to be the answer when there is the next decision to be made. And so illustrating our presence, illustrating our connectivity with their priorities, um, not just with the host governments, but also with civil society. Because as we know, and as you have pointed out, sir, the, those who have to smell the air of a coal fire plant are, are quite not interested in pursuing that any further. Governments listen to that um, frequently. And so engaging not just our private sector counterparts who are very interested in pursuing some of these green climate goals themselves, um, not just our host country governments who have their own goals, but also being, ensuring that we are engaging civil society in this discussion as well, because they can bring a significant amount of influence to bear. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Dalton, um, the... Uh the Targeting Environmental and Climate Recklessness Act uh, is something that I uh, reintroduce, which brings the full weight of U.S. sanctions against those who perpetrate human rights abuses against environmental uh, defenders. Um, yeah, can, you, uh, can you talk a little bit about what the role should be for the United States uh, to uh, play this human rights defender, especially when, it, when we're talking about environmental abuses that are occurring in countries and our moral and political weight is needed to leverage the indigenous groups that are seeking to protect themselves and their livelihoods. Senator, thank you for, for the question. I'm going to um, request to take that question for the record as it um, relates to the, that specific uh, act. But broadly speaking, in terms of uh, DOD engagement in, in the region, um, given our strong network of alliances and, and partnerships, certainly uh, the Biden-Harris administration prioritizes the, the value of, of good governance and in, in human rights. Um, so when it comes to our security cooperation relationships, the, the provision of security sector assistance, um, it, it is a um, strong criteria that, that we use to, to evaluate um, whether to provide assistance and, and certainly to, to monitor how that assistance is, is used over time, sir. Okay, well, let me ask you this. Corrupt authoritarians uh, throughout the region, including the military junta in Burma and the Kim family in North Korea, use fossil fuel revenues to support their regimes. How can the United States act to prevent corrupt petro regimes from stymieing climate progress? Senator, again, I'm going to have to take that, that particular question for the record. Okay, Thank you. And, uh, I would appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate your expertise as well on that issue. Um, Dr. Pershing, do you have any recommendations as to how we should uh, handle that issue um, in terms of the corrupt nature, unfortunately, in too many uh, countries of the, uh, of the petroleum, natural gas industries? So um, I have maybe a story that's not quite a direct answer, but a connected answer. 
Uh, we, we spent some time in the last month or so traveling and meeting with various other partners around the world, and one of the countries that we went to was Saudi Arabia. This is a country that's had some serious, uh, long-standing and probably unique requirements around fossil fuels, pays for something like uh, half of their entire government budget, and there's clearly some degree of, of uh, internal royal family dynamics, that uh, operational uh, structure that's there. One of the things that I found when we were there is that they are willing to think about a shift in how their policy works. They are willing to think about alternative models for development. They are working, in fact, to think about hydrogen, which is a much more diversified economy. They're thinking about solar, which is also a diversified economy, which would change the outcome in a fundamental way. To me, part of what we have to do is we have to wield the stick, but we also have to have the carrot. And the carrot might be in the way that we can offer them an alternative model of growth and development. And if we do that, at least the experience just from this last trip suggests that we would have an audience and might get a transition. Great. Well, um, I appreciate the expertise of this panel. I'm going to ask each one of you just to give us the 30 seconds you want us to remember from this panel as we're moving forward in crafting legislation or uh, foreign policy. We'll begin with you, Ms. Dalton. What, what's the 30 seconds you want us to remember? Thank you again for the opportunity to testify today. I think I, what I would stress is that um, while there are significant requirements for humanitarian assistance and disaster relief in supporting our uh, allies and partners in the region and building their partner capacity, there are hard security challenges too that we need to keep in mind in terms of um, the ability to sustain access spacing and overflight requirements um, for, for war fighting and deterrence in the region. Um, so the department is committed um, to taking a holistic look um, at how we can support a whole of government approach to address these challenges. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you. Mr. Dalton. I'm sorry, I said Mr. Dalton, Mr. Hart. <laughs> oh, thank you, sir. Uh, so thank you very much for the opportunity to testify. I would say that USAID's presence in country makes a huge difference. It is the relationship upon which we build our trust, and we also are able to engage the host country governments. We're also able to work with civil society to ensure that those institutions are the ones that have voice in this process. Um, we're also able to work upstream and that is developing the higher education and institutions that are going to produce the workers of the future and being able to look at um, some of those very critical business enabling environment factors that are going to allow American companies to come in and compete on a level playing field. I see that as absolutely critical for the overall solution set within this topic and many others. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Brongan. Um, thank you, Chairman, for having the opportunity uh, to, to testify before you today and, and engage in this discussion. I think for the State Department, our challenge is trying to meet the, uh, this administration's um, uh, uh, goals of, of, uh, of our Indo-Pacific uh, strategy and, and meeting um, the, uh, our, and trying to do what we're trying to do in terms of our U.S. leadership, asserting U.S. leadership, a positive um, an affirmative uh, vision of U.S. leadership in the region, and that's going to require resources. Uh, we are certainly engaging our allies and partners uh, and giving them the tools uh, that they need to address and mitigate uh, the effects of climate change. Uh, it's going to take um, not just dip the diplomacy, but public diplomacy. Um, Mr. Hart mentioned our engagement with civil society. We do that every day in the State Department through our embassies and our consulates in the region. So uh, the, being able to meet those challenges with the right resources and the right people uh, to, be able to, to, to be able to do that in the region. Thank you, Mr. Uh, 
Bongan and uh, Dr. Pershing. So three things. I think we have to walk the talk. You can't just say what you want. You have to deliver, and that means at home. The second thing, we need to partner on the ground. We've got to be present. That means through commercial endeavors, through financing, through technical assistance. And the third thing, we have to lead with a vision. We have to have a vision of the world as it could be and go down that pathway with allies. I love it. Walk the talk, partner on the ground, have a vision of the future that the rest of the world can buy into. That's a big order, but the United States is up to it. And we thank all of you for all the great work you're doing towards the goal of achieving that. Thank you all so much. Uh, the first panel is excused, and we'll move on to our second great panel as well. So our witnesses uh, our second um, uh, panel. Thank you also. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Our, our our second panel consists of uh, Marinel uh, Samuk. Uh, Obaldo, who is a climate activist from the Philippines, uh, Richard Powell, who is executive director of ClearPath, um, and uh, Sherry Goodman, uh, general secretary of the International Military Council on Climate and Security. So we welcome uh, the, um, the three of you. And uh, I think what we could do is maybe start uh, with Ms. Obaldo. Uh, I know she's up on the screen, and she's going to be testifying remotely. And if we have the technological capacity to link us in to her, then we can begin the second panel. While we are doing that, okay, and we will get that all set up, why don't we turn to you, Mr. Powell, uh, introduce yourself, and, uh, and please, in, in five minutes, please summarize your testimony. Good afternoon, Chairman Markey, uh, and members of the subcommittee. I'm Rich Powell, and I lead ClearPath. ClearPath advances policies to accelerate breakthrough innovations that reduce emissions in the energy and industrial sectors. An important note, we're supported by philanthropy, not industry. Climate change is real, and industrial activity around the globe is the dominant contributor. We believe the challenge it poses to society merits significant action at every level of government and the private sector. I have spent my entire career working on climate change solutions, including my time working with energy companies and governments in Indonesia, Malaysia, and Singapore. Jakarta, Indonesia, which I called home, is a relevant case study. Given its proximity to low-lying rivers, extreme precipitation, 
a rising sea, rapid growth, and overextraction of groundwater, the city is literally sinking. Indonesia is made up of highly populated islands and some of the largest remaining rainforests in Southeast Asia. It's rich in people and culture and quite poor in open, available land. That makes relying heavily on land-hungry clean energy, like wind and solar, entirely unrealistic, as it is for much of the region. To further complicate matters, Indonesia is also rich in coal, and developing countries continue to turn to coal as it remains cheap, abundant, and reliable. This is a microcosm of the wider region. Given your role in America's response to the global climate challenge, I will discuss three key topics. First, the global emissions landscape, Asian emissions driven by China could eclipse America's emissions efforts. Second, an innovation-driven policy agenda to cut the cost of clean technologies for developing countries. And third, opportunities to build on your strong, bipartisan clean energy innovation priorities. U.S. lawmakers, Republicans and Democrats, and businesses are prioritizing climate solutions. But while the U.S. reversed our emissions trajectory, much of the rest of the world is growing their emissions as they grow their populations, industries, and quality of life. To remain competitive with China, U.S. energy policy must synchronize with the global challenge. Even if the U.S. somehow eliminated all of its carbon emissions tomorrow, just the growth in emissions from today through 2050 by developing Asian countries would exceed total U.S. emissions today. Unfortunately, today's clean technology is not up to the task of global economy-wide decarbonization. We need to focus on breakthrough technologies that offer both better performance and lower costs than the traditional emitting technologies in the market. China's not making this challenge easier. Greenhouse gas emissions in China tripled between 1999 and 2019 and accounted for 27% of global emissions in 2019, more than the entire developed world combined. Looking ahead, China has only committed to stopping new coal by 2026, locking in those emissions for decades to come. China is also the largest public financier of coal plants globally, but its overseas support is dwarfed by its own domestic development. Last year, China brought 38 gigawatts of coal online, more than three times the rest of the world combined. China's Belt and Road Initiative makes it very cheap and straightforward for developing countries to electrify their economies by building new coal plants. Leaders in these nations would likely prefer to build clean energy, but their top priority is getting electricity turned on. So new subcritical coal plants and outdated, extremely high-emitting, inefficient, but very cheap technology are what they often choose, and China helps pay the bills. Meanwhile, our export credit agencies are lagging. By statute, XM is only empowered to prioritize clean investments in renewables and energy storage. As Dr. Pershing also suggested, we can assemble better packages that offer like-for-like -like substitutes to the subcritical Chinese coal plants, like advanced nuclear or natural gas with carbon capture. A no-regrets policy shift would be to expand the XM transformational exports program to put all clean energy on the same footing. The United States can truly lead on reducing global emissions. But there is no tax or domestic regulation that will magically halt emissions around the world. We must focus on strengthening the American economy, not ceding ground to China or Russia. There is a path to reducing global CO2 emissions and creating new American jobs. It's a simple four-step plan. Innovate, permit, build, and then export. First, we must innovate. This means developing clean technologies the world wants to buy that give America a competitive advantage.
Second, we must eliminate unnecessary regulatory hurdles that slow down permitting innovative technology. To that effect, I'd like to draw your attention to the findings of the recent bipartisan Aspen Institute Cleaner Faster Dialogue. Third, we must demonstrate how the technology works. If we don't see American innovations through from R&D through commercialization, our basic research here is only welfare for China. They have proven they will take our innovations and run with them, as you mentioned earlier, Mr. Chairman. And fourth, we must export the proven U.S. technology and create new clean energy markets. Innovations must work not only in America, but also apply to Myanmar or Malaysia, given their development goals. As you craft this agenda, and I cannot underscore this enough, partisan climate policy is not sustainable. It results in short-term uncertainty and does not provide the market signals we need to move to a clean energy economy. We can start by building on recent bipartisan wins. In addition to the bipartisan authorizations in the Energy Act of 2020, the most recent FY20 and 21 appropriations bills are great successes. Investments for clean energy demonstrations for carbon capture, advanced nuclear, grid-scale long-duration energy storage, enhanced geothermal, hydrogen, and direct air capture should remain at the core of any bipartisan policy. Thank you for this opportunity. We applaud the committee for taking on this important task. Thank you, uh, Mr. Powell. Thank you for being here. Uh, now, I think that we've made our connection. With our witness is in the Philippines. So there was a little bit of a technological glitch, but uh, Marinel Ubaldo, if you are there. Marinel, can you hear us? Can you hear me? Yes, perfectly clearly. So, okay. the, the, the miracle of modern telecommunications makes it possible for you to testify here before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, just an incredible human rights, you know, climate activist in the Philippines. So welcome, please introduce yourself and tell your story. Dear honorable members of the subcommittee, fellow advocates, ladies and gentlemen, greetings from the Philippines. I'm Marina Lobaldo, a 24-year-old young professional who is trying to live a normal life after surviving the wrath of Supertech Hunhayan. I'm currently working as the advocacy officer for ecological justice and youth engagement for Living Laudato Si Philippines, an interfaith movement initiated by Catholic lay people calling the Philippine financial institutions to divest from coal-related operations and other environmentally harmful activities, and as the Philippine Country Coordinator for Quai 16 in Glasgow. I grew up in Materino, Salcedo, Eastern Samar, with fond memories of a happy childhood playing on a white sand near the shore on a coast facing the Pacific Ocean. I grew up not worrying about food since we are living on the coast with abundant produce. My father is a fisherman he did not need to sail far to catch fish. The ocean has always provided for us. Growing up near the Pacific Ocean, I have been used to typhoons. It's nothing new to me. Our house has always endured every storm and we seldom need to evacuate. Not until Super Typhoon Haiyan happened. The night before Haiyan struck, we had no more electricity. So together with my whole family, we were already at the evacuation center, which was 10 meters away from our house. I brought an encyclopedia with me so I can just read until the storm passes. My bag was only filled with my phone, charger, notebook, and pen. 
I didn't bring any clothes with me because I thought we could go home immediately when the storm subsides. It has always been that way. Never did it cross my mind that we will have nothing left of our house, but only one fourth of its flooring and about three of its columns. We did not really know what storm surge meant until we experienced that ourselves. Around three o'clock in the morning on November 8, 2013, everyone was panicking as the winds became more intense. We wanted to evacuate again because there might be a tsunami. I saw a woman carrying her child who almost had her head cut off because of the GA sheets blown away by the strong winds. I couldn't fully describe what was happening at that moment. There were plenty of families with their children in tow, rushing to seek refuge in our evacuation center because the evacuation center they were in got destroyed. The roof, the windows, and the doors of the building we were in got also destroyed. Many of us got injured because of the broken glass windows and flying debris, and 11 people died in our village. Three days after Haiyan, we were left in isolation. We had nothing to eat but cassava. We had no food, no water, no electricity, and no secured shelter. We had no change of clothes, so we were all wet and cold. I was so confused and devastated by the reality I was facing. I was only 16 years old and was about to graduate high school at that time. And I wasn't even sure if I could graduate, let alone continue my college education. I lost my books, my uniform. How can I continue studying when my parents cannot afford to send me to school anymore because we lost our livelihood? For three months, I was not able to go to school because it got destroyed. March 2014 came, and we needed to fast track all the lessons so we could graduate by April 2014. After Haiyan happened, it seemed like my future even became more uncertain because my parents did not earn enough to send me to college. Luckily, I, get, I was able to get a scholarship for my college education and was able to work by facilitating training on climate change adaptation and mitigation. I had no choice but to do it so I could sustain my needs, especially because our fishing livelihood stopped for months because my father's boat was broken and there were no fish to catch. We couldn't also bear the thought of eating fish that may have fed on the dead bodies of the neighbor, of our neighbors and the people we knew. My father, had to sail to other places just to go fishing, but he would end up with little to nothing. There was a huge depletion of fish catch after Haiyan, and it made surviving even more difficult. It even came to a point that when my mom couldn't handle it anymore, so she left us for good. And thus, we were faced with another dilemma. I was already in my first year of college in Tacloban at that time when my father told me the news. As time passed, my father suffered from depression. He barely ate and slept. He couldn't bear to go fishing anymore, and he became suicidal. Being far away from home, knowing that your family is in that painful situation made things worse. But I had to remain strong. 
I first learned about climate change and disaster risk reduction in October 2012 at the age of 15 years old. I became a child facilitator and I had the opportunity to visit remote communities and schools to educate people about the causes and effects of climate change and the measures necessary to adapt and mitigate to its effects. Seven years later, my nerves still get the best of me whenever I hear the crash of the ocean waves. I get anxious and restless when it rains because I feared that another high end would happen again. It took me three years before I was able to go into the ocean again. It's sad because the water was our childhood friend. I grew up with it. It has always provided everything we need. But now, whenever we look at the ocean, there's always fear because we can never forget how it took everything away from us. Super Typhoon Haiyan was the strongest typhoon ever recorded. If climate change continues, the Philippines will be experiencing more and stronger typhoons. Super typhoons will become a normal phenomenon, and it would mean that my children will live their lives fighting and surviving super typhoons. These experiences motivated me to do more. Sharing has been the key to healing for me because I realized climate change is not just an issue of adaptation and mitigation, but also an issue of human rights. This is the start when I started lobbying with the government, delivering talks around the US, Europe, and Asia. In 2015, we submitted along with other grassroots organizations like the fishermen, farmers, indigenous peoples, and others, a landmark petition to the Commission on Human Rights in the Philippines to investigate 47 carbon majors for their contributions to human rights violations linked to climate impact. And in 2018, I have served as a community witness during the public hearing in New York. And in September, I was one of those who did a lone protest in front of the Shell Company in Manila, calling them to face the people. Finally, Ms. Abaldo, if you could just summarize the remainder of your testimony, please. Okay, so the, to the people here today, you, I mean, you are leaders, you are known experts in your respective fields. You're being looked up to by so many people. But behind those achievements, you are fathers, mothers, grandfathers, mothers, aunts or uncles, sisters and brothers. When you go home, you go home to the kisses of your children. And I dare, dare you to look them in the eye and tell them you're burning their future in front of your own eyes. You should not be the one asking me what the U.S. could do to help us. You should know the answer to that. Stop funding business as usual. Stop loaning developing countries large amounts of money for climate projects that are impossible to be settled. You need to take accountability for the suffering of vulnerable people from, from countries that are not contributing that much to global carbon emission, like the Philippines. Stop the fake it until you make it tactic. We are in an emergency, not in a show. You are superheroes to your children, and you should be one for the earth. I saw the hopelessness the typhoon had caused and the struggle of my community and my family. The loss, the loss and destruction, I've seen the death. I realized we should not be, we should not just accept being vulnerable throughout our lives. We should not accept being only victims. We have the power and we have to do something, and I do not want my family and community to suffer again this way. No amount of climate denial or apathy can resurrect our loved ones. But I hope to awaken the minds of those most responsible of, for climate change. 
of those who have the greatest capacity to act and change the current system for the protection of vulnerable communities everywhere. So, Ms. Baldo, we thank you. Ms. Baldo, we thank you for your opening statement. And during the question and answer period, you're going to be given a, a plenty of opportunities to be able to expand upon your thoughts. So we thank you, and we thank you for that powerful, powerful opening. And uh, I'd like to recognize our, our final opening witness, who is um, an old friend, uh, Sherry Goodman. And uh, Sherry uh, is the Secretary General for the International Military Council on Climate and Security. Uh, back in 2007, uh, when I was the chair of the uh, Select Committee on Climate Change in the House of Representatives, in my first hearing, uh, I called Sherry so that she could select my first witness. Uh, and what she did was to survey the 12 um, three- and four-star generals and admirals who she had organized who were speaking out powerfully against climate change as a security threat. And, uh, and General Gordon Sullivan, who had been the Army uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, lead, was our first witness, next to James Woolsey, who was George Bush's head of, uh, of the CIA, next to Richard Haas, who was the head of, uh, of the, uh, uh, the, the Foreign Relations Council, so we just decided to lay out the, far, the, the, the security and foreign policy implications of climate change. That's 14 years ago. And uh, Sherry Goodman continues to lead on these issues. So we welcome you, Sherry, uh, whenever our technological wizards can connect us. And we look forward to your testimony, my friend. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Can you see and hear me? We can hear you, uh, and I think they're going to – now we can see you very clearly. Good to see you, okay. Sherry. Whenever you're comfortable, Great. please begin. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, thank you for accommodating me virtually. Uh, I'm in a very important state, which you know very well, uh, as does your ranking member, and uh, I plan to see General Sullivan here next week. So we'll bring you greetings, and it's a privilege to appear before you today. So uh, the bottom line up front, as we say, um, I'm going to address four things. How is climate change a threat multiplier in the region? Second, what impacts will it have on regional stability? Third, what, does the, what do these changes mean for the U.S. military and its operations in the region? And fourth, what should we do about it? Okay, as you just said, since the CNA Military Advisory Board first characterized climate change as a threat multiplier in 2007, National security leaders and a bipartisan Congress have concluded that climate change can exacerbate political instability where food, water, and resource shortages already exist, often in the world's most dangerous and fragile regions, as we just heard so compellingly from Marianelle, and thank you for sharing your personal story. Climate change now contributes to unprecedented security threats for the United States here at home, as we heard today. The director of national intelligence has repeatedly emphasized that the United States will have to manage the negative effects of a changing climate. President Biden has not only recognized these threats, but elevated them by putting climate security front and center in his foreign policy, calling for the integration of climate considerations across the work of all agencies. Second, the specific climate security risks facing East Asia and the Pacific, the regions highly exposed to climate-driven hazards, including extreme hydrometeorological and heat events, sea level rise, acidifying oceans, 
Across the region, these climate impacts are exacerbating physical, ecological, socioeconomic stressors, leading to intensifying food and all other resource competition, societal tension, migration, and displacement. Southeast Asia exemplifies these dynamics, as we reported uh, this earlier this year. In the South China Sea, countries face contested maritime boundaries, competition for ocean-based resources. On land, excessive heat and drought, particularly in rural agricultural areas, are accelerating migration to coastal cities, which are themselves at risk from storms and inundation. Domestic insurgent groups are able to recruit desperate farmers and fishermen who are no longer earning a living due to climate change related effects. These threat amplifiers added to the physical damage wrought by climate impacts are stunting economic growth, ecosystem sustainability, and impairing the ability of governments to provide even basic services. What does this mean for US military operations in the region? Climate change simultaneously reduces the military's operational preparedness and expands its missions by straining the base infrastructure, interrupting exercises, and increasing the need for humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. Secretary of Defense Austin underscored this point at the World Leaders Climate Summit in April, noting that the February 2019 typhoon outside of the typical typhoon season forced the United States to pause exercises with its Australian and Japanese allies. What should we do? The United States should leverage all the tools in its toolbox across agencies and governments to address security-related climate threats. Such an approach has the added benefit of enhancing geostrategic and economic competitiveness with China. The U.S. climate security strategy should not be separate from, but instead integrated with our strategy to compete and align or cooperate with China as needed in America's national interest. Three types of recommendations are key. First, increasing U.S. investment in science, research, development, and deployment of the, and the innovation culture of the private sector. This investment across many U.S. agencies will not only advance clean energy transition, but advance climate predictive technologies, so essential to managing for resilience in a warming world. Additionally, these investments are a source of American national power that enable the United States to compete with China and demonstrate leadership to our strategic advantage in the region. Second, we need to help our allies and partners tackle climate security risks. Mary and Elle discussed them extensively. Using a whole of government approach, the U.S. is now developing unified interagency regional climate security strategies. As part of this effort, State Defense, USAID, and others need to work together utilizing this new climate risk assessment framework to incorporate climate security considerations into all foreign and defense policy planning. And I think U.S. Indo-PACOM is at the front of this effort. Finally, we need to improve the resilience, resilience of the U.S. and allied force posture and base infrastructure in the Pacific Many of our key sovereign partners and critical force structure in the Pacific, highly vulnerable to climate risks like the Marshall Islands, Kiribati, and others. Fortunately, DOD's climate defense climate assessment tool is now beginning to assess these risks. U.S. bases on small islands like Diego Garcia, Guam, Marshall Islands need to get the access to this tool quickly. In conclusion, through climate, though climate security risks are unprecedented, our foresight into these risks is unprecedented as well. Climate proofing our collective security is essential to protect America's 21st century near and long-term national security interests. Thank you for the opportunity to testify today, Mr. Chairman. I look forward to your questions. Thank you, uh, Ms. Goodman. Appreciate your, your perspective. Uh, thank you to the panelists today. I, I've explained before, and you probably heard it already, that we have voting going on 
on the floor of the Senate. So members of this committee keep disappearing for long periods of time. It's getting over to the Capitol, uh, getting our votes recorded, and then, uh, and then getting back. Uh, so this is no uh, uh, display of, of uh, uh, disrespect or a lack of interest. It's instead just the reality of, uh, of votes that we had not anticipated coming at this particular time. Uh, Mr. Powell, good to see you again. Appreciate your being here. Um, I, I'm interested in your perspective on, on how we're going to deal with, with a real threat, which is the, uh, the rising temperatures on the planet, the climate change we're seeing, the, the obvious consequence of that, uh, which is already being borne out in some ways. Uh, and yet at the same time, we have uh, the, 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 the nations that are emitting more and more and that are growing their emissions are, are nations that are um, not as wealthy as us, uh, whether it's Indonesia or the Philippines or India. Um, China obviously has an economy almost the same size as ours. It will pass, pass ours within the next decade, um, but, but not a wealthy country on, on a per capita basis relative to us. And, and how to get these countries to adopt uh, emission-saving technologies, uh, it, it strikes me as being a very high uh, lift, uh, very high. And, and, and so I'm, I'm wondering, how do we address this, this issue? We can all talk about goals, but we, if we establish goals that are 40 years out, then the reality is these politicians that establish them recognize they'll be long gone and someone else is going to have to deliver on them. So what, what can we do that, that actually has some prospect of reducing the emissions uh, uh, on our planet. Thank you so much, Ranking Member Romney. Thank you as well for your leadership on this issue, for your membership in the Bipartisan Solutions Caucus uh, for, and I understand this deal is happening per perhaps right now, for working so hard on this bipartisan infrastructure deal, which would have a significant, I think, implication on, on, on what we're discussing here today. You know, goals are are terrific. Uh, and when I was in the private sector working with very large organizations, we often found it very helpful to set aggressive goals. But as you said, those goals need to be in the moderately near term. They need to be very specific. And you need to have at least some idea that you have a toolkit in place that you can take action on to achieve those goals. I think right now the problem is that we're asking the rapidly developing countries of the world to change their trajectory and to do something very different than the way we developed our own economy, but we've not given them the tools in order to do that. So much of the rest of the world sits on literally, effectively infinite coal reserves. If you look at Indonesia, South Africa, uh, India, China, right? As long as that remains the most economical technology to use, they're very likely to continue to use those reserves, and that's how we developed our economy. It's hard to blame them for that. We need to provide a better like-for-like -like substitute to very cheap, very reliable, high-performing, quick-to-build coal technologies, especially the subcritical coal technologies that are the older, less efficient things that are being built in so much of the world. The good news is we know many of the candidate technologies to do that. We know that that's probably some combination of continued use of fossil fuels, but with carbon capture that turns that CO2 into either a commodity or that safely stores it underground, or it's advanced nuclear energy that's also very power-dense and could be sited on a small small footprint of land, or it's enhanced geothermal, or it's some combination of other renewable resources, but combined with really long duration storage technologies. So we know it's some, some combination of those. It's probably a portfolio of those things. And the good news is, in the Energy Act of 2020 that you passed back in December, you established a moonshot program to demonstrate those technologies. We now here in the United States have very aggressive, statutorily mandated goals 
to demonstrate that whole suite of technologies somewhere between 2023 and 2027 based on the technology. Y'all are in talks right now about potentially funding those demonstration programs. Once those are stood up and developed and demonstrated here in the United States, then we really need to focus on assembling realistic financing packages and technological expertise to get that into the developing world. Right, right now, China will offer those, those developing countries virtually anything they want to build. That's usually the cheapest technology. We've got to have a realistic alternative package. And we've got the development, development finance and export credit agencies to do that, but we could do a lot more with what we have, and we could do a lot more to, to beef up the resources of those agencies. So China is, uh, is adding to the problem uh, by, by building new coal facilities around the world. People want coal, coal plants. They'll build a new coal plant, and, and that'll be spewing CO2 and other greenhouse gases into the environment. Uh, no, no friend of the, uh, to the planet, despite what they say they're going to be doing themselves. Uh, it, it sounds to me like, like you feel that the answer for the world is, is technology, not necessarily some breakthrough, you know, cold fusion or something that we can't even imagine, but instead saying, okay, how do we take... Uh, uh, known technologies, or some perhaps we don't even know yet. How do we take these, commercialize them in a way that's that's inexpensive, such that a country like Indonesia that has ample coal reserves would say, "Okay, I'll use this other technology because it's about the same cost." Is that is that what you're saying? Th- that's exactly what I'm saying. The good news again is that we have things that are near the finish line, but unfortunately, that first breakthrough, that first pilot or small scale demonstration, is a long way from having something that's actually cost effective enough to deploy it at global scale. You know, energy planners around the world, and I've worked with them in Southeast Asia, they're very conservative, just like they are here in the United States. They're responsible for electrifying their economies, for keeping the lights on as often as possible, for keeping hospitals and cold chains and all of these very, very important facilities up and running in their economies. They they need to see something that they can believe in. They need to see something that they have a reasonably good chance is going to be built and developed in, in really in a, in a presidential cycle in many cases in, in their home country so that they can also get the credit for having built the thing. And, and they need export credit. No large facilities are built anywhere in the developing world without the sovereign backing and guarantee of someone on the uh, creditor and, and vendor side. And so if, if that's not going to be the China Belt and Road Initiative, that needs to be some combination of the United States and our allies and some combination of our collective export credit. Let me ask you in that regard with regards to carbon capture, where are we in carbon capture? I understand that the Chinese are doing a major facility in carbon capture. Where is the technology here? Do we have companies that are actually making real progress there? What more should we be doing there? What kind of hope do you attribute to to carbon capture technologies? Um, just like the just like China has taken the lead in solar photovoltaic cells, I think it's fair to say the United States has taken the lead in carbon capture technologies. We have one of the largest, best developed carbon capture industries here in the United States. We already capture and safely sequester or use for enhanced oil recovery, literally millions of tons of carbon dioxide every year. We've got 5,000 miles of carbon dioxide pipelines. That sounds like a lot, but it's not a lot compared to the the rest of our infrastructure for hydrocarbons in this country. The key now is further deployment to bring that down the cost. I'd say carbon capture is today perhaps where wind or solar were 10 years ago. So we now fully understand the technology. We understand how it works. We've piloted a lot of things, but we've got to deploy a lot of it to bring it down the learning curve so that it's actually ready to go for the really challenging conditions in the developing world. Yeah, thank you. Uh, uh, Ms. Goodman, um, you, you've heard from uh, Mr. Powell um, uh, that, that, at least from his perspective, that the, 
the answer to reduce global emissions uh, really focuses on uh, uh, developing technologies and, and uh, further uh, applying technologies that, uh, that would be adopted in the parts of the world that are growing fastest, that are, uh, that are adding massive amounts of CO2 uh, to the environment, China, Indonesia, Brazil, India. Uh, is that an approach that makes sense to you? Uh, do you, uh, do you Ms. Ms. Goodman, do you, uh, do you uh, subscribe to uh, Mr. Powell's perspective? Well, I subscribe to the perspective that uh, we can best lead in a race to the top while by seeking our own American competitiveness with those technologies that uh, uh, Rich Powell mentioned. I think they're all very good. And I think also from a national security perspective, there many of them are very useful to um, enhance and make more secure the defense mission. And where, that, where there's an alignment between the needs for the military mission and opportunities to lead by example in a broader commercial sphere, you get a double, uh, you, you know, you get a double benefit. So for example, the Defense Department uh, leases uh, hundreds of, you know, uh, over 150,000 vehicles a year from GSA, and those can be electrified. And that can lead to uh, greater uh, electrification of the vehicle transport system in the US. We use microgrids and other renewable technologies at forward operating bases in remote places. Many of those are similar to small villages around the world that have the use for similar um, technologies that can operate off grid. And that's gonna be extremely valuable. So I think there are many ways from small modular reactors to various types of uh, advanced microgrids and energy storage technologies um, to climate predictive analytics that are going to be useful to turn various sectors such as agriculture, transportation, and defense planning to have better analysis and climate predictive at the granular scale to plan future um, security risks and, and prevent them, uh, that there are opportunities both to lead by example that enhance the defense mission and at the same time provide commercial and global competitiveness benefit. Thank you. I'll ask one more question and then turn to the chairman who, who just got back. I'll give him a chance to look at his notes here. Uh, but, but that is, if, uh, if I had $1 trillion to spend or $2 trillion to spend, if I were you know, deciding all by myself how we as a nation would spend funds uh, relating to climate change, and, and uh, I won't say over what period, but I, I guess there's a question as to where, where would that money be most effective in reducing the the emissions into the planet would it be that that we for instance uh do a better job insulating old buildings and uh and getting people to drive vehicles that are more fuel efficient here in the united states uh, or would it be um uh, investing in new technologies carbon capture um perhaps uh, small scale nuclear power plants uh uh, other sources of energy, energy generation, cement manufacturer technology innovations, and so forth, that, that would be adopted here and around the world. Uh, and, and so I'm not telling you that you have to take, put all your money in only one bucket. You might say, well, I'd take 80% and put it in one and 20% in the other. But, but uh, how, do, how do you see that, that, that priority um, in, in where we should be investing our, our resources? And I know by Democrat friends may be tempted to say, well, we'll just spend as much as we need in all the categories, but I know there is some limit as to how much you can spend. So assuming that, where, where should we devote the bulk of our resources if we're really interested in reducing the, the uh, CO2 going into the environment and other greenhouse gases and actually seeing the global uh, temperature kept at a 1.5 degree Celsius uh, target? 
Uh, yeah, I'll start with Mr. Powell. Thank you. Uh, unsurprisingly, Senator, I, I think I'd put the vast majority of the resources in, in the latter bucket, which would be to uh, really effectively demonstrate a whole suite of these technologies. And as you mentioned, not just in the clean power sector, but also thinking really seriously about how do we rethink steel production and concrete production? How do we think about retrofitting all the fuel in the world and replacing it with clean hydrogen over time, as opposed to the existing traditional hydrocarbon fuel over time? So I think there's a, there's a, there's a significant pool of resources for that demonstration program. I think there's another significant pool of resources for smart incentives so that we deploy all of those things and sort of test them and demonstrate them in our markets while we rapidly bring down the cost. And then there's a third major pool of incentives around export credit and uh, development finance investment in the rapidly developing world to, to scale those things up. The, the last thing I'll say is that you can magnify all of those investments if you reform the permitting structure within the United States so that the same pool of resources gets you further because it doesn't have the same cost and time and permitting costs in actually developing and demonstrating all that here in the U.S. Thank you, Mr. Powell. Ms. Goodman, do you want to answer the same question? Well, I, I agree with much of what Rich said. I, I think that we have to walk, be able to walk and chew gum. You know, we have to we have to show leadership here at home in our own transition at the same time that we want to move markets overseas and show American competitiveness uh, in these areas and help those. Uh, it, it may be a race to the top, but we have to help those who are at the bottom as well. Uh, and so I I. Um, I think that the we can lead with technology demonstration, test, and, and deployment, and enabling the private our own private sector better commercially to compete uh, and have a viable alternative to China's Belt and Road Initiative. I think that's going to be much to our strategic advantage because our security in the region depends not only on military security, but now as we see commercial, energy, and environmental security, they in fact all go together. Uh, and we have to keep in mind also that there are many opportunities in nature-based solutions in all of these sectors uh, that we're talking about that need um, technology advancement and rapid development as well. Thank you. Now, having taken advantage of three rounds of questions for myself, I turn to the chairman. <laughs> yeah, those were all great questions. Uh, and uh, and I agree with much of what you are saying. And I think that this panel really can help us a lot. And I, I want to go back again, if I could, to you, Ms. Goodman. Uh, back in 2007, when General Sullivan was testifying, he talked about being the general in charge of making the decision to send in uh, U.S. military to Mogadishu and that the ultimate result was Black Hawk Down, and that as he, by 2007, had a chance to reflect back on 1993, he realized that it was a drought, that it had led to a famine, that it had left uh, different groups in that country now fighting over scarcer resources. And now we're 14 years further along in this storyline, and we really haven't begun to come to grips with what the national security implications will be for our country because our country is the one that has to move out to try to make sure that there is stability on the planet. So can you talk about what has happened in the last 14 years from your perspective to the planet that makes it even more dangerous than it was back uh, in 2007 when you had General Sullivan so graciously testify before that climate committee? 
Well, thank you, Senator Markey. And, you know, we've seen the just the unprecedented accelerating risks and threats of climate change since 2007, where temperatures in the Arctic, for example, we knew were already warming. Then we said they were warming at twice the rate of the rest of the planet. And now sometimes it's almost three times the rate of the rest of the planet. We will have ice-free summers in the Arctic uh, and open shipping seasons within the next decade or so. Um, and, you know, and then we've seen these typhoons that Marianelle talked about high, high on, but, you know, we now see even more of them um, on a regular basis. And the confluence of the three major hurricanes across the Atlantic um, just a few years ago also is evidence that extreme weather events are fueled by climate change. And the heat in the, um, the unprecedented heat in the Northwest, so devastating to people who are unprepared for it, you know, in the United States, right? And, um, you know, who, and, we, and we've seen major deaths and now the flooding across Europe in Germany. So we are living it on a daily basis. 2007, we said, we called it predicted climate change, but now we know it's here, it's here and happening every single day. Um, you know, we, we see it just here in the coast of Massachusetts. We've lost a lot of the beachfront area uh, from warming temperatures and sea level rise. So, um, you know, we, we know that it's happening and now it's being, fi finally it's being developed into plans and strategies uh, that can be acted upon by, this, by, by the Biden administration. So they've taken uh, the work that we and you and others have done over the last decade and a half and put it to the into this very very ambitious uh, climate executive order with many different requirements from a climate risk analysis to climate assessments by every agency to the first national intelligence estimate on climate change. So there many many wheels are turning, and I would uh, I, I think it will be very useful for this committee to hear later this year and next year about the results of those analyses, and then also to see how they're being. Um, how, how the actions recommended are being financed. Because as we say, a strategy without resources is hallucination. So, you know, you have to have the funds committed to actually make those wheels turn and enable, for example, a very constructive, let's say, Pacific engagement strategy, which might have, um, you know, which will enable us to work with our allies and partners in the region, perhaps in advance of the next typhoon, uh, to make more resilient their communities but also to enable better disaster risk response and preparedness. And you are up on Cape Cod right now, and with the exception of the Arctic, it's the second fastest warming body of water on the planet, the Gulf, the, uh, uh, the Gulf of Maine, which is where Cape Cod is, the second fastest warming body of water. And we can see it with the cod moving north. They need cold water. The lobster moving north. Uh, good news for Canada if they want to ex completely capture the lobster and the cod industries. But bad news for Massachusetts. Mother Nature uh, is uh, sending us a warning and it's impacting us economically. And, um, and, and again, the Arctic is affecting us from a strategic perspective. Okay? There, there are tremendous implications uh, the longer that we ignore this issue. So let me move back over to you, Mr. Powell. Uh, I had dinner last week with the head of the International Energy Agency, uh, what he said to me was this, very simply. We have off-the-shelf existing technologies that can meet our international goals over the next 10 years. We don't need any 
innovation breakthroughs. We just use off-the-shelf existing technologies. We can meet all of our goals. After that, we need big innovation breakthroughs uh, if we're going to meet the 2050 goals. But between now and 2030, 2035, we can do it with existing technologies. Do you agree with that framework in terms of what the sequencing has to be if we're going to meet our 2050 goals? Well, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, by the way, for your, your longtime leadership on this. I, I actually happened to be at that same dinner, and I thought that, uh, huh. that Dr. Burrell's comments were, were very, very insightful, especially in the wake of the, the really interesting and uh, uh, somewhat troubling analysis that they conducted um, uh, at the International Energy, uh, Energy Agency. Um, you know, I think it depends a lot on what our goals are by, by 2030. I, I do agree that there's an enormous amount that can be done with existing technologies. We've seen an enormous improvement in the cost profile and the performance profile of, uh, of, of solar and wind technologies, of, uh, you know, of, of, of efficiency technologies, electric vehicles, et cetera. That said, if we start to look at, at deep decarbonization, especially outside the power sector, we're, we're obviously a lot further off. Let's just look quickly at the industrial sector. You know, so the challenge of clean steel, clean concrete, clean petrochemicals, finding some way to supply a cross-cutting source of heat for heavy industry, for glass and pulp and paper and all these things. We're not, we're, we're not you know, even, even near having something that can be deployed across all of that within the next decade. And so I think it goes sector by sector. And for some sectors, we're a lot further behind than in others. But in general, to meet the 50% reduction goal by 2030, uh, and including the utility sector, the the vehicle sector, uh, I, I, but knowing how difficult it is in cement, in other technologies, yeah. I think what what uh, he was telling us was that. But to make the breakthroughs in those areas, we're going to need big innovation breakthroughs, and that would be twenty thirty to twenty fifty. Do you agree with that framework in general? I I think I agree that the one place I'd have concerns, um, especially uh, going very, very large with uh, variable renewables, especially in the United States, is really more on the permitting side than on the economic side. If you look at the recent analysis that was released by the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, just at the interconnect queues for new renewable projects across the country, you know, average time to interconnect three years in California, eight years. So if you're thinking, you know, what are California's goals in 2030? Well, they better have applied for the interconnects for all the projects for that two years from now. So I think if we can find some way to radically speed up the progress of deploying the existing technology, I, you know, I, 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 could, I could align with that. But I think that does remain a hurdle. But those aren't technology innovation breakthrough issues. Those are very true. Can we make our system work, please? Can we have <laughs> permitting, coordination amongst states, you know, interconnectivity uh, issues resolved? Uh, that's not... Um, that's not a technological breakthrough. I, I think that's what we were being told. It's not a technology problem. It's a political problem that we've been facing. And if we can just get the politics right, get out of the way and deploy what we've already got, get half the problem done, and then the, the breakthroughs can happen. Because actually, I think there'll be an incentivizing of, of, uh, of companies all across the country to make the breakthrough in these other areas because the momentum will have built to such a point where it'll be clear to the cement industry, to the steel industry, to others, that they're going to have to move as well. And therefore, there's a huge opportunity to become extremely wealthy if you make the breakthrough in the new technologies that will help them to achieve it. So, uh, and ultimately, those market forces will drive that technological change. 
so let, let, me, let me come back, though, if I, if I can, to uh, Ms. Ibaldo uh, and, and talk to you a little bit, because you are there in the Philippines suffering from the worst, most catastrophic consequences uh, of, uh, of, of this incredible change which has taken place uh, in terms of uh, typhoons and other climate and uh, ocean impacts upon your country. Um, what, what do countries like the United States have to do uh, in order to support still industrializing uh, nations to fight against climate change? Thank you so much for that question and for allowing me to talk. Um, we call on, we in the Philippines, we call on for the centralization of technologies and develop local capacities to understand and access technology for both, both mitigation and adaptation purposes. We also call for support for local technologies as well as the freeing up uh, of critical technology intellectual property rights to help communities. And also we call for end and false solutions such as carbon capture and storage, geoengineering, among others. And we also call on the governments, not just actually the Philippines, but also the global, um, our global leaders to stop finan uh, the financial institution and all investing institutions to divest from dirty energy and enhance their investment portfolios with renewable energy. We also call to phase out the existing coal plants and this is from building new coal-fired power stations. In the context of climate justice, any replacement, replacement such as hydro or nuclear power must take into consideration the impacts they have on the environment. I also have noted um, that in climate negotiation, especially with the global leaders, the implementation and oper operation, operationalization of the Paris Agreement um, should also be highlighted and the support to developing countries in terms of climate finance to reach the ambitious targets of our nationally determined contribution. As the representative of the youth sector and from a vulnerable um, country like the Philippines, I strongly believe that coming up with strong action points at the climate um, negotiation is greatly important. While we recognize that there are so many issues that our global leaders need to iron out, um, but it is equal, equally important that we have concrete ways for, forward um, after such event like this and we can implement in our countries and local communities. We hear the, all the amazing plans of our leaders and achieving net zero, but these remain, if these remain as ideas and in papers, all our efforts will be futile. We need these to be operationalized and defunded to increase the resilience of our local communities and reduce their vulnerabilities. If we continue to remain on the negotiating table without implementing these plans on the ground and also consulting the ground, the women, the children, and all those vulnerable sectors, we fear that this will be this will jeopardize our future. Uh, thank um, you. Thank, thank, yes. thank you for that uh, great answer. And uh, thank you for just being an inspiration uh, as an activist, uh, not just in your own country, but across the planet. It's really young people who are rising up. They're the ones who have created this energy around um, this issue back in 2009, uh, when as the chair of the climate uh, committee, I was able, partnering with Henry Waxman, to pass a law through the House of Representatives that reduced greenhouse gases by 80% by the year 2050. Um, it was killed over here in the Senate 
But we didn't have a movement at that time. And we now do, thanks to people like you, Ms. Ubaldo, and young activists all across our country, all across uh, the planet. Uh, the Europeans now call their climate plan the Green Deal. Uh, we've just had a change, a sea change politically. So we have a chance to do something big right now and inspired by young people, uh, courageous young people like yourself. So thank you so much for all everything that you're doing. So let me finish up here then by asking each of you to give us the one minute that you want the, the subcommittee uh, to remember about what we have to do in order to deal with this question responsibly, historically. So we'll begin with you, Mr. Powell. I'm going to use part of my minute to reiterate something that Ms. Goodman said, that a strategy without resources is hallucination. And so we need to develop a strategy to combat climate change, but we need to establish the tools uh, to actually do that and to get the entire global economy uh, to a much lower emissions. And we do think that the way to do that is to start by innovating that new breed of advanced clean energy technologies across all the sectors for our global economy, including things that are very relevant for the rapidly developing world. We need to reform the permitting process so that we can quickly demonstrate them in the United States. And then we need to build them here and build enough of them to rapidly bring down their costs. And finally, we need to do much more to export those into the rapidly developing world to push back against the coal finance of the Belt and Road Initiative uh, and to make it an actual realistic solution for so much of the rapidly developing world to choose clean as opposed to traditional limiting technologies. Thanks very much. Beautiful. Thank you. Um, Ms. Goodman, your final piece of advice for us, please. Well, thank you, Chairman Markey. Um, I, I think we need climate-informed decision-making across all of our foreign policy and defense strategies. And I know you and others on this committee will uh, be asking those direct questions. And it's so clear in the Indo-Pacific, we're so vulnerable. We necessarily absolutely need that. Second, we need to work even more closely with our allies and partners uh, to show that show them that we care about their needs and their climate risks and that we are working together so they are less vulnerable uh, both to the climate risks and to China's uh, encroachments. And third, uh, we need to improve the resilience of our force and base structure throughout the region and in the U.S. because that's going to be key to enabling us to continue to perform uh, our missions in the region. Thank you, Ms. Goodman. And uh, Ms. Ubaldo, you have the final minute of this hearing. So thank you so much. So in his encyclical, Laudato Si, the care on our common home, paragraph 49, Pope Francis said, we have to realize that a true ecological approach always becomes a social approach. It must integrate questions of justice and debates on the environment so as to hear both the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor. I'm here in front of you virtually, not just as a climate statistic you see in the news, but I'm here as a human being hoping to remind you that we need to value lives again. And I'm also here to speak on behalf of the vulnerable and the marginalized communities. May our stories motivate you in prioritizing climate actions. We should be part of the negotiation table, not just someone telling a sad story, but not really listen to. So may our voices be heard. Thank you. Beautiful. And, uh, and I think that's just the right sentiment for us to uh, end this hearing. Um, I, I think that ultimately the United States has to be the leader. We are the technological giant of the planet. Uh, and when we set our minds to ensuring that we were going to move from no one with a flip phone in their pocket 
to everyone with a flip phone in their pocket, to everyone having a device in their pocket equal to the computer on the Apollo mission. We did it. And in villages in Africa, in Asia, in South America, people now have that computer in their pockets, uh, transforming the way in which they live. We can do the same thing in the energy sector. Uh, but the U.S. has to lead. We need a plan. Uh, and if we lead this plan, uh, then I think the rest of the world will follow. And China will either partner with us or the rest of the world will just have to move without them. And ultimately, they will lose this opportunity. So all of you uh, have given us like Cassandra-like warnings of what happens if we don't move. Uh, and uh, it's going to be heeded by this committee and others uh, across the city. We can't thank you enough for your great testimony today. With that, this hearing is going to be adjourned, but not before I tell all of the members that the record will stay open and they'll have until the close of business Friday, July 23rd, to revise and extend their remarks and submit questions for the record. Um, and with that, uh, this hearing is now adjourned. <laughs>